Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. With Canada leading the pack on first-dose vaccinations and at least 41% fully vaccinated, attention has turned to the continuing cost of fighting COVID-19. By some metrics, Canada overreacted with its stimulus efforts. StatsCan reports the value of government support measures exceeded what was lost in wages, salaries, and self-employed income. The inflation rate is the highest in a decade, and the savings rate is near historical highs. At the Institute, Associate Director of Research Jeremy Cronick joined CEO Bill Robson in answering the question, do we still have too much stimulus? While I think there's a fair amount of consensus that the immediate reaction of governments, and I'll, I'll talk about you know, governments generally uh, throughout the developed world, uh, reacting quite appropriately with a lot of fiscal support and central banks with a lot of liquidity support uh, when the COVID crisis shut our economies down in the spring of 2020. Um, what we've seen since is that even as the economies of uh, many countries and certainly Canada, uh, we're happy to see this as well, uh, the United States uh, big time are coming back, um, the fiscal supports have continued, the borrowing and extraordinarily high spending, uh, it's coming down, but it's still uh, way far from normal. And central banks are also still uh, a bit pedal to the metal. Uh, not just keeping their policy interest rates, their short-term interest rates at emergency levels, uh, but buying a lot of bonds. Uh, and so the question is, with the economy getting back to normal, uh, are we now building up debts uh, and sort of committing ourselves to higher future tax rates that we really uh, don't need as the economy is getting back to normal? And in the case of the central banks and, and how much support they're providing, and especially with the bonds that they're buying, uh, are we getting into a situation where we're going to have inflation uh, moving up in a way that's going to be hard to control? So it was all right at first, but um, now uh, a lot of us are asking, have we, are we now getting too much of a good thing? Bill hit the nail on the head. I mean, from my perspective, I think part of why we're getting this rebound is because those measures that were put in place fiscally and, and on the monetary side at the, at the early stages of the crisis uh, were the right approach. They were done correctly. It doesn't bother me that they, uh, you know, you hear this all the time, that they were more than was necessary. I think that was the right approach. We didn't, you know, it was something we'd never seen before in a global pandemic. And, you know, we can worry about it later on. The problem is we're not worrying about it later on. Um, you know, now is the time, uh, I think, given what we're seeing, given the extraordinary savings rates, given the charter bank deposits as a share of the economy are higher than they've, than they've ever been, there doesn't seem to be much reason to continue with the aggregate size of these stimulus measures. Now, there certainly are pockets uh, that have been hurt disproportionately during this pandemic. And so from a support perspective, it's not to say those should be removed, um, you know, because, for example, many businesses uh, still aren't open. And so you could be targeted, but certainly the aggregate size of it, both fiscally and monetary, just don't seem to be in line with what we're seeing from a growth perspective. And, and we're seeing the we're already seeing sort of these inflationary pressures that I think go beyond base effects. Is the central bank kind of caught between a rock and a hard place here? We know that decisions that get made by the Bank of Canada are intended to be focused on looking 18 months to two years out. Can you really even 
project that kind of decision making when you're in a, a pandemic like environment where you don't know if we're going to see another variant crop up that then puts us back into shutdown mode, despite the fact that X percent of the population is now vaccinated. We're starting to reduce measures. Is it not just um, the Bank of Canada being cautious here about the prospect of uh, another variant coming out and knocking us to our knees again? The Bank of Canada deserves credit Again, uh, thinking about the crisis that unfolded last spring uh, for having done as much as they did uh, with as much energy as they did, because the immediate crisis was one of liquidity. Uh, There is suddenly massive demand for cash because people are uh, a bit panicked about what's going on. And you don't want to have a situation where a financial crisis uh, exacerbates what was already a very serious uh, health and economic situation. So they flooded the payment system with cash. Uh, as other central banks, uh, including the U.S. Federal Reserve, did. And there is no uh, sense in which that's inflationary because they're just responding to demand. You know, it's uh, supply and demand for cash. If there's a whole lot of demand for it and the central bank supplies it, then there's no implication for inflation. Um, the, The difficulties arise, and Michael, you alluded to this in the way you framed the question, about the kind of balancing act that's necessary uh, because you do need to start withdrawing that over time and you want to make sure that you're doing it at a pace that uh, you know hits that that golden mean that 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 Goldilocks balance that you want between uh, withdrawing too quickly and putting the economy back into a tailspin uh, and leaving too much money out there for too long and having it start to move around and, and push prices up. The other thing that I'll I'll mention that's in a similar kind of a vein when it comes to doing a balancing act is that the COVID crisis was unlike the sort of recession that you typically think about monetary policy dealing with because the model that people typically have in mind is one where the economy's productive capacity is kind of on a stable, we hope upward path over time and demand cycles around it. So demand might be above capacity at times and then the central bank reins it in with higher interest rates and slower money growth to make sure inflation doesn't get out of hand. If demand is below productive capacity, then the opposite. They're more supportive. With COVID, you had a real hit to the economy's supply side. And so it it wasn't obvious whether demand and supply were uh, out of sync or what. You had a lot of businesses that were simply closed. Uh, and as we go forward, and you mentioned variants, uh, they do have to they do have to still manage that. So it is a tricky situation for them. Um, I guess uh, I'll turn it over to Jeremy for his observations and say uh, uh, what he did at the end of his last comment, which is that we're seeing inflation now uh, running well above the central bank's targets. And it's not just because prices were depressed a year ago that was going to happen and that was going to give us higher headline numbers. But there's an awful lot of momentum in in some of these uh, areas that suggest that there is a bit more liquidity uh, in in the in the system, U.S. and Canada, than the economies really need. And if they are going to make a move in in any direction over the next little while, uh, my instinct would be that they should be um, pulling back a little bit on the stimulus. 
the job of the central bank is always a tricky one in that you you know you are looking six to eight quarters ahead and you always do have this this uncertainty and you know if you look at the reports that the monetary policy reports they put out i mean there's always confidence bans right except for at the beginning of the pandemic when when they basically admitted look we 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 don't know where this is going to go uh, but they have brought those confidence bans back into play. And so they do have the ability, um, you know, to look at both headwinds and tailwinds and come up with what they think is the the scenario down the line. And so I don't think it's enough just to say, well, they're, they're sort of caught in this hard, this rock in this hard place situation. Um, and, and the other thing to consider is they now have with this elevated balance sheet really two tools at their disposal, right? It's not just the overnight rate anymore that the bank has to play with. They have the balance sheet. And so they can tighten simply by reducing how many bonds they purchase without necessarily sort of offsetting, you know, all the good that they've done or or, or take away all the, the stimulus on the demand side. Um, and just lastly, and you know, as, as Bill said, Monetary policy really can only target the demand side, right? And so the, the 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 tricky part in this pandemic has been that it that yes, there was obviously a demand side, but there was a massive supply side shock. You're essentially just saying we're going to shut down the whole thing, and so thinking about what you know what the supply side looks like when we reopen, uh, you know, matters, and it's not as clear. I think we thought the supply side would be, uh, you know, because we're still technically in lockdown, right? And and the economy still has 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 moved forward and grown. Uh, so the supply side is different because we've had this rearranging away from bricks and mortars even more to digital. And so, you know, even if we are shut down in the future, what does the supply side really look like? So, I I, I think. I think there's more to it than 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 simply you know the uncertainty when you're a forward-looking institution, um, and like I said, those two tools really matter here because I think there's ways to tighten without really doing uh, you know damage if we are sort of forced to go back into uh, lockdowns in the near future. Well, let's come back, Bill, to your point about uh, some indicators of momentum in inflation that concern you. The year-over-year figure for uh, April was 3.4%. As you pointed out, this time a year ago, April of last year, we saw the, really the first full month of COVID-related measures, a big depression in the prices of things, not just gasoline, etc. And as a result, we get now this 3.4% reading. But where are you seeing momentum within that? Because it just sort of suggests we took one step The way that I would interpret what we're seeing in, in the inflation numbers is that uh, the economy is actually pressing up against its ability to provide uh, goods and services. And I, I, I'll look first at the United States, uh, where the year-over-year CPI is now uh, registering 5%. Um, there, it seems clear to me that the economy's ability to supply the things uh, that people are now trying to buy or buying uh, is is um, uh, constrained. And so you're seeing, uh, for example, we've got supply chain issues that are affecting the automotive market and the used car market is on fire. Uh, we have a lot of activity, uh, both sides of the border in housing. Uh, and the price of lumber at the wholesale level has spiked and is now coming down. But um, people who are working in that sector will tell you everything's in short supply, whether you're looking for lumber, doors, windows, uh, whatever it is. 
Uh, and when you see that in one sector or another, uh, you can say, well, you know, there's quite specific things happening. Uh, but when you're seeing it uh, so much across the board as we are now, it's reasonable to ask if there is just, uh, you know, too much money uh, chasing too few goods and services. Now, the U.S. is ahead of us on this. I just did want to bring in that bit of context because I think the Bank of Canada uh, on its own is uh, quite a bit uh, more resolute about hitting its inflation target than the Fed seems to be. The Fed's been saying quite straightforwardly that they're prepared to let inflation run above uh, their their 2% long-term target for a while. The Bank of Canada, much less uh, willing to let inflation run, uh, you know, too hot for too long. But when the U.S. inflation rate is outpacing the Canadian inflation rate for a long period of time and the Fed is staying easy uh, for a long period of time, that does create pressure for the Bank of Canada. One of the things that happens if U.S. inflation is persistently higher than Canadian inflation is that the U.S. dollar goes down relative to the Canadian dollar. And anytime you see the exchange rate uh, under upward pressure, uh, there are going to be people, you know, producers of tradable goods and services, uh, That that's a competitive threat to them. Uh, if the if if the Fed is keeping interest rates very low, there's quite a strong presumption, especially among sort of business economists, that the Bank of Canada uh, not only will, but should keep its overnight rate low. So it's not necessarily a problem that's originating entirely in Canada, um, but the fact that there's a problem in the United States inevitably complicates life for us. Maybe I could make three points and they're not totally uh, in sync. So, uh, you know, I'll apologize in advance, but I, I want to reinforce the, you know, the, the, the fact that these pressures uh, are more than just year over year. We're seeing this even in the three month period, right, which has nothing to do with base year effects. Um, and so those pressures to me are actually the greater concern. I think the bank could justify itself if this was just year over year, given where we were in sort of, you know, March, April, May. Uh, but I don't think you can make the same claims when you just look at it in the, in the last three months. I think that's indicative, really, of those pressures that Bill was talking about at a productive level, at a productive capacity. So uh, that that's that's one point uh, on, on the Fed Canada. Uh, you know, the, the, the Fed moved to an average inflation targeting regime in the summer. Um, but the, the problem with that is it wasn't really an average inflation targeting uh, measure. And the reason it's not is because they weren't clear about both sides of it. How, you know, on the, on the, you know, they weren't clear when, how long they were going to allow that average inflation targeting period to be measured. And they weren't also clear about how it would work when it, when it goes in reverse. So on both sides of the, of the, of the 2% target. And, and what that does is it really doesn't put a good anchor in place for people. And I think you're starting to see that now is, is we don't really know when, you know, what's too much for the Fed to turn around. So that's, you know, we aren't, I don't think, I don't see Canada going in that same direction. I think we're going to stick to the 2% target. We have um, uh, the the regime to be renewed in, in November or in the fall at least. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. But I suspect that there'll be tweaks, but nothing, you know, uh, as major as what we saw in, in the U.S. And then the third thing is the, on the exchange rate. And so this is really interesting. I mean, Canada, I, I think, you know, historically, we've always thought about it in terms of, uh, you know, being an exporting country and we, you know, we, we do worry about these exchange rate pressures. But, you know, our trade balance isn't that heavily favored on the export side. So while I completely agree with Bill, I mean, the, the flip side, of course, is that if you're 
currency is stronger, you can import more, right? And for cheaper, right? So there's the import side of it. And there's also the capital flow side of it, if your interest rates are relatively higher. So there's, you know, I I think the trade story is one that I think, you know, from a, I I think is going to be an interesting one, um, you know, going forward. Jeremy, you brought up an interesting point about this savings rate. Uh, It's come down substantially from its peaks during the course of COVID-19, but it's still north of 13%. What is the expectation as a result of that? Does that tell us we will see the floodgates of spending thrown open, or does this high savings rate north of 13% suggest we as Canadians are going to remain cautious about spending through the summer and into the fall because we just don't know what's next? So you're right. 13%, just to put it in perspective, is I believe the highest since 1993. And 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 it came down from a level of 26 or 27% last year, which is just, I mean, unbelievably high. Uh, so, and I think, you know, that that story is certainly one of, of the transfers from government, uh, you know, not being targeted. Governments wanted to move quickly, rightfully. And so it was, it was, we'll worry about who gets it later and we'll just get it as broadly as possible. But, you know, the reality is that for those of us that have been fortunate enough to keep our jobs, uh, you know, during the pandemic, we haven't had anything to spend on. And so, you know, savings is just that much higher for the group that's kept their jobs. Uh, and so I do think that there's a lot of pent up demand. Again, there are pockets of people who really have been hurt disproportionately by this pandemic. And, and I think the support needs to continue for them. But for if you look on aggregate and, and, and you know, central banking, fiscal policy, you know, a lot of the times has to look, you know, at the macro aggregate story. I do think that demand is there and I think we're going to see it, you know, the second that we do get sort of a more widespread opening than we've had so far. Is the suggestion here that we are going to look around, see that the stores are open again and suddenly throw open our wallets wide and start spending, driving up inflation as retailers and others try to capture as much of that flood of cash as they can? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we'll have to see how people uh, react socially. I mean, I think, you know, most of us think that we're going to do, you know, we're going to act a certain way when 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 things are open, but we'll, we'll have to see how that you know, how that proceeds and whether people are a bit cautious at first and, you know, not as willing to go sit in restaurants. But I do think that in, in, in general, uh, you know, that 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 money's there and, and, and people are going to look to do stuff with it. Right. And, and 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 I think that that will create inflationary pressures as the supply side has to try and, and keep up now, whether it it continues, uh, you know, because inflation really is, is you know, it's you can look at it in in a one-off term right but but for inflation to be consistent it has to continue to be in that way where you're bumping up against those supply side pressures um and and so that that i'm you know we'll have to see but i do think that uh i i do think people are are there to spend and we've seen that in other countries where like israel where they have opened up uh we have seen that sort of um you know animal spirits uh pick up pace I'm in the camp that expects that people are going to go more back to the way they were before than uh, seemed conceivable during the depths of the lockdown. Uh, If you look at history and recoveries from pandemics, if you look at the way big cities have just consistently grown, uh, even at times when uh, you would have thought people were crazy to be moving downtown, uh, there are just these very powerful effects uh, leading people to want to be together and do things together. And so I am in, as I say, in the camp that expects things to be surprisingly back to normal. And that does imply that 
a lot of that um, pent up demand is going to come out. Uh, and if you if you express it uh, as f- in terms of the, the monetary effects, a lot of this cash that we've been talking about has really been sitting quite still. It's in the saving accounts. Uh, it's not circulating in the economy and it's not exerting price pressure. Uh, from a monetarist perspective, you'd say the velocity of circulation is amazingly low. And what you would expect to see with the kind of uh, recovery and pickup in demand that we're talking about is that the velocity of circulation picks up. And that means that money that previously wasn't uh, creating inflationary pressure because it wasn't doing anything uh, starts to move around and and it does create some inflationary pressure. The other thing that I thought I might just quickly uh, pitch in a, a one idea on is that we have been talking about the high saving rates uh, as a consequence of these income supports from governments that perhaps now with it, with the benefit of hindsight, but also since it's still going on, there, there's a forward-looking element to this to say this is more than we currently need. And what is actually happening in a way is that governments are financing uh, people to buy their own bonds. Right. They're issuing all this debt. They're providing transfer payments to people who aren't spending all of them. And so what are they doing? They're turning around and they're 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 buying bonds and they're financing the government's deficits. Well, that's a bit of a circular uh uh, activity that really doesn't leave us where we would want to be. We would be much better off not floating that debt, uh, have people, uh, you know, not not buying so much government debt, uh, and 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 not building in the kind of you know higher uh, interest payments, uh, ultimately higher taxes that that implies. We can now see that we've been doing a little too much, so it does make sense to to bring that back into line and stop giving people transfer payments with which they just buy the debt that the government issued in order to pay the transfer payments. So what do you see as the solution here? If we've had too much stimulus uh, pushed into this market, you know, even Statistics Canada reported that the value of government COVID ID, uh, COVID-19 support measures exceeded the losses in wages and salaries in self-employed income. Does the government of Canada have to react or is it the Bank of Canada that needs to respond by changing the way it deals with its buybacks? The nice thing about the inflation targeting regime is is really it, it should work to constrain both sides, right? So if you know if these inflationary pressures are more than just temporary, which we believe they are, uh, then it should force the bank to stop buying and it should force the government to stop issuing, right? And and so those pressures ought to work together, um, and that's why I think it's so important for the Bank of Canada to continue to reinforce and perhaps even stronger reinforcement of that 2% target target so that we sort of get this, I'm using it in a different context, but this divine coincidence. Um, you know, the 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 other thing I, I would just mention on that is there was a good piece out uh, by Warren Lovely at National Bank, you know, on, on his expectations of, um, you know, the windfall that, that uh, governments are going to get from this growth, right? This growth is actually outpacing what governments expected, uh, at least in the short term. And if they do get this windfall, it would be prudent, right, to to sort of pay back the, you know, pay back some of the debt that's been accrued because of the pandemic, uh, which would then help get fiscal policy, you know, back on a, on a, on a more sustainable path. So 
you know, because that that is one of the the, the upsides of having been, uh, you know, having put those payments out, transfer payments out to support the economy is it has created really this this windfall uh, in growth. So, you know, it's a lot maybe to expect for governments to use it like that, especially with elections perhaps coming uh, sooner rather than later. Um, but but I would say that on the windfall side, and I and I and I would reinforce the fact that the two percent target is there to constrain both sides. Bill, final thoughts from you. Jeremy has made a cogent case for the federal government to get itself uh, onto a more sustainable fiscal track. Uh, what I would say by way of reinforcing that is that. Um, they talked uh, a lot, and they still do, about the fact that Canada, uh, federally at any rate, has a pretty good debt position, a pretty strong balance sheet. Uh, that is unfortunately not as true as it was, but to the extent that it is true, it's because uh, past governments ran prudent fiscal policies, and especially when you look at what happened after the 2008-09 uh, crisis, uh, the federal government uh, restored the budget to balance and contained the growth of debt. They turned they turned it back around, um, and we're not seeing uh, that that kind of determination from the federal government this time. And I think that's troubling because we now have ample reason to know that things happen from time to time. And it's not sensible to project indefinitely into the future that growth's just going to be steady. There won't be natural disasters. There won't be pandemics. There won't be other kinds of problems. So I, I very much want to see them um, uh, pull back, uh, reduce their fiscal footprint, uh, and all the more so because for the provinces, this is a far tougher situation. Uh, their expenditures are going to be harder to compress because so much of that's in healthcare. And on top of the demographic pressures they had already, we now have a lot of investments that we need to make in the healthcare system. And so that's a big strain for them. Um, on the central banking side, uh, Jeremy really covered it. Uh, they, we've got an inflation target. The Bank of Canada has a great track record of hitting it. And I have a lot of confidence that if left to their own devices, they will um, continue to make sure that inflation doesn't exceed 2%. The thing that is troubling me a great deal about the current situation is when I look at what's happening with central banks and national governments together. Uh, if we go back to 2008-09, there were big fiscal responses both in the U.S. and Canada to that crisis. Uh, the, the, the Fed also was extraordinarily energetic. Uh, the Bank of Canada, not quite so much. It didn't use its balance sheet the way the Fed did then. Um, but the reason I mentioned that episode is because when you look at how much government debt went up, when you look at how much debt central banks took on, there are different amounts. Uh, there, there was no straightforward correlation to say, oh, the, the U.S. government issued this much debt and the Fed bought this much debt. The Canadian government issued this much debt. The Bank of Canada bought this much debt. They, they didn't look as though they were at all joined at the hip. They were independently responding to what the economy seemed to need. This time, it's a, it's a very different story. Uh, the, I, I just uh, checked these numbers again and my, my own calculations, they're a little rough, uh, but it looks as though between the start of 2020 and, and the middle of this year, the U.S. federal government has run up about $3.9 trillion in debt, and that is exactly the same size as the amount that the Fed's balance sheet has grown by. Um, over the same time, uh, on this side of the border, Ottawa has run up about $480 billion in debt. The Bank of Canada's balance sheet has grown by about $360 billion. They're not identical 
identical numbers, but they're sort of comparable orders of magnitude. And that makes me nervous because it's going to, it suggests to people, rightly or wrongly, that the, that the, the governments are issuing this debt and the central banks are buying it. So one of the things that I would really like to see, the Fed is going to do what it's going to do. The U.S. government is going to do what it's going to do. That's not within Canada's control. But on this side of the border, everything that you can do, especially from the Bank of Canada, to underline that they are running monetary policy for the sake of hitting the inflation target and they're buying bonds because they think that's uh, appropriate. We can debate whether it is or not, but that's their goal is to make sure that they're providing some support to the economy and that the bonds that they're buying have nothing to do with the fact that the federal government is issuing all these bonds because if people start to assume that that's how things are working, whether they like it and say, hey, this is great. We have central banks that are able to finance the government's debt so we can just keep borrowing or whether they say this is no good at all. They're printing money to finance government spending and that's going to lead to inflation. Uh, both of those things are negative in my mind. You really want to have it clear that the Bank of Canada is pursuing its course uh, independently of what the federal government is doing. They'll get back uh, onto sustainable tracks uh, in their own uh, at their own pace and in their own way. And we won't have this worry that they're kind of joining at the hip. Bill Robson is the CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. Jeremy Cronick is the Institute's Associate Director of Research. Still to come from a physically distant C.D. Howe Institute, barriers to mobility. We'll discuss land transfer taxes as a municipal revenue tool with the Institute's Ben Dacus, Toronto City Councilor Shelley Carroll, and the Chief Market Analyst at the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board, Jason Mercer. On the 15th, we'll reimagine the future of Canada's health systems with SE Health Future Strategist Sienna Kayat, Sheila Maloney of Canada Health Infoway, and the National Health Consulting Leader at Deloitte, Lisa Purdy. We're back in September with Martin Eichenbaum, the Charles Moscos Professor of Economics at Northwestern University. That's September 10th. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.